The title of today's sermon is Last Kiss of Death. It's taken from Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. I'd like to say that I believe you people are smart. You've got the intellectual prowess and abilities to understand something that might not fit with your preconceived ideas. We're to be challenged to be disciples, not sheep to follow along with some predetermined doctrine that we heard when we were in fifth grade or in high school. So I'm going to ask you to think this morning. I believe you can do that. I've been called as a pastor to make disciples, not just believers. So I trust that you've moved underneath my ministry from being a believer in Jesus Christ to a Christ follower, someone who wants to make Jesus Christ the center and focus of their life. So I'm going to challenge you this morning with my sermon. I trust it's okay with you that I'm not doing a resurrection sermon, just continuing on in my series. Frankly, after 30 or so times of preaching on the resurrection, it gets a little difficult to come up with something fresh, so I'd rather just continue on in the series that we're in, and I hope that's okay. Let's ask God to guide us and direct us in our study this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We pray that as we go through Matthew that we would be challenged to think deeply about the message that he brings to the Jewish people. Help us, Lord, to put it in context and to hear your words spoken to us through it. Convict our hearts of sin, righteousness, and judgment this morning, we would ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do you remember the song written by Wayne Cochran back in 1961 called Last Kiss? I know some of you do. Upon its release, it was a flop. But then it was covered two years later by Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. Their version of the song made it a hit in 1964. Years later, that same song would be a hit once again when a Canadian group by the name of Wednesday covered it. And finally, in 1999, Pearl Jam covered it once more and made it a hit. I'm sure you'll recognize it. Listen. Listen to the words. You know it? Well, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good So I can see my baby when I leave this world We were out on a date in my daddy's car We hadn't driven very far There in the road, straight ahead The car was stalled, the engine was dead I couldn't stop, so I swerved to the right Never forget sound that night, the crying tires, the busting glass, the painful scream that I heard last. Well, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good, so I can see my Standing all around Something 
a young man borrows his father's car to take his sweetheart out on a date, and it's raining really hard. He swerves to miss a car in the road, and as he does, he loses control. The accident leaves him and his girlfriend unconscious. He finally awakes to find himself surrounded by people, and as he searches for his sweetheart in the wreck, he finds her still unconscious. He cradles her in his arms, and as she awakens, she smiles and she says to him, hold me for a little while. He bends down and he gently kisses her one last kiss before she passes on to heaven. And as he grieves her sudden loss, he vows he will be good so that he, too, might once again see her in heaven. This melodrama has been a constant theme of popular culture. It's been driven into your unconsciousness, embedded through music, film, and books. Over the years, it's effectively brainwashed the masses into believing that salvation is a works-oriented salvation. I must be good. To attain eternal life, albeit to make it into heaven, I must be good. It's found in such movies as Ghost, It's a Wonderful Life, and my personal favorite, All Dogs Go to Heaven. The premise is always the same. We must change our behavior to be good in order to earn entrance into heaven. The the reverse of that is true as well. If one is terribly sinful, one can never hope to enter into heaven. I'm reminded of another song written by Eric Clapton. Following the death of his four-year-old son after he fell out of a window from a 50-story apartment complex in New York, he sat down and in his emotions he wrote tears in heaven. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? I must be strong and carry on because I know I don't belong in heaven. Would you hold my hand if I saw you in heaven? Would you help me stand if I saw you in heaven? I'll find my way through the day and night because I know that I can stay, can't stay here in heaven. Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knees. Time can break your heart. Have you begging please, begging please? Beyond the door, there's peace, I'm sure, and I know that there will be no more tears in heaven. Would you know my name if you saw me in heaven? Would you be the same if I saw you in heaven? I must be strong and carry on, because I know I don't belong in heaven. It's very clear that Clapton knew from his lifestyle and his choices that there was no way he was going to make it to heaven because he was bad. You see how it's buried, embedded, and planted in the American consciousness and the world by music, by movies, by books. So then, how is heaven attained or lost? Is it based upon human works or not? You can begin the outline, if you would, Cynthia. Oftentimes, the preaching of John the Baptizer... And his follower, Jesus, 
is used to validate this wrong-headed thinking. The idea is that the creature must somehow atone for his sins through repentance and turn from his evil ways and be good, or one can never be fit for heaven. Now, last week in our study of the book of Matthew, we left the first family as they made their way, you'll recall, from the land of Egypt back to the land of Israel. Now we fast forward. Jesus' toddler years are over, and he's about age 30. He's about to emerge from his home life in Nazareth to begin to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew chapter 3? We pick up with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find our text that we'll be looking at this morning, and I ask you to look at it with me on page 958 of the Pew Bible. Here we see that John was preaching to the multitudes out in the Judean desert. Matthew writes, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The opening phrase, they're now in those days, is a bridge. It takes us from the first family's return to Nazareth to the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, as John introduces him, as we shall see. In this process, as I said, we skip 28 years of the life of Jesus, or thereabouts. But the first question we need to ask as we study this text is, who is John? Now, if you've read the Bible, you know from Luke's Gospel that John was a cousin of Jesus. By this time, however, John had grown up and he'd become a famous preacher in Israel. John was born to Zacharias, a Levitical priest, and to Elizabeth, a cousin of Mary. John chose not to follow in his father's footsteps and enter into the priesthood. Instead, he became an itinerant preacher. John ministered during the intertestamental period. That is, the time between the writing of Malachi and the writing of Matthew. This is known as the 400 years of silence. It's called that because the Lord did not speak to Israel for that length of time. There were no prophets prophesying to Israel. The heavens were silent. But now that silence is broken as John, the last Old Testament prophet, takes center stage. John, like many of the other prophets before him, was a lone but powerful figure speaking for God. He even looked the part. As you know, his clothes and his food indicated loneliness and uh, separation from the masses. In fact, Many in Israel, upon seeing John and hearing him, thought of him as Elijah, the new Elijah. His pulpit wasn't a lectern in the synagogue or at the temple, but in the desert. His home was not the city of Jerusalem, but the wilderness. John did not go to the people. The people came to John. And anyone who did and heard his message, they would have to make a long trek out into the hot desert, nothingness, to hear his voice. So what was his message? Well, to begin with, John delivered that message with a loud and a clear voice that offended many people. He would become known as John the Baptizer. 
Unfortunately, we, we brought that over to the Baptist, but it was really John the Baptizer because his message called upon the Jewish people to be baptized to identify with his message. If they agreed with him, they would be immersed into the waters of the Jordan. Now, this immersion into a body of water was an unknown practice amongst the Jews. They would ritually wash in mikvahs, or they would clean their hands, their, their, their necks, and their arms uh, as Jews, but they would not be immersed. That washing, that immersion, was something that Gentile proselytes did. They self-immersed in the water and became part of the Jewish community. John calls upon the nation of Israel in this text we look at to have a change of mind about their life as a nation. Look with me in verse 2. He proclaims to the masses, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, as the last prophet of God, John came in the spirit of Elijah, so says Malachi, and he shared the same message as Elijah. That is, before the Messiah can come, there must be one who comes announcing the great, dreadful day of the Lord. John proclaimed that message, much the same as Elijah did. Make way for the king. He's coming. In chapter 17, the Lord Jesus himself will allude to this, saying, Elijah has come already. That was John. Both men, John and Elijah, took on the religious and the political authorities of their day. You'll remember, Elijah opposed King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, while John took on and opposed King Herod and his wife Herodias. John... Uh, Elijah opposed the prophets of Baal. John opposed the religious hypocrites called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John's message fits nicely with the paradigm found in the law and the prophets. He said that the Jews must return to worshiping God, Yahweh, or the king cannot come. Jesus affirmed this same message early on in his ministry. He affirms John, saying that John was greater than all the other prophets. John had the unique privilege of being the one who announces the king and prepares him the way. In his message, we find the embodiment of the whole law and prophets. Now some have seen John as a sort of a rival to Jesus, but that's just not true. They both came preaching the same exact thing. They both came ministering to the same people, the nation of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. Both had the same message addressed to Israel. This is not addressed to the church. The church is not even in existence. It's a mystery at this point. This was a call for the nation of Israel as a people to experience a change of mind, a change of attitude about and towards God. This is aimed at corporate Israel and not individual Jews. This was a call for the nation to return to faith. Now the word that's used in your English text universally is the English word repent. We're going to think about that very deeply for a moment. Oftentimes, this throws people off. What exactly was John asking in later Jesus? They usually misunderstand it. They usually 
misuse and abuse this word. Preachers love to focus on the term repent because by it they can suggest to their their listeners that they need to feel really sorry for their past actions and their lifestyles and thus make some drastic change. More on that in a minute. But let me explain to you the etymology of the word repent. You can trace that word only back to the 16th century. It didn't exist before the 16th century. So why are we placing this word on a 2,000-year-old text? Interesting. The word repent and repents is derived from the Old Latin, the Latin word penitentia, which is borrowed and brought into the Old English. It was used by the translators of the Latin Vulgate to translate the Greek term metanoia, The Latin word penitentia is is literally transliterated as penance. Repent. Repentance. Get it? Again, penance. Again, repentance. As you are aware, the Roman Catholic Church is big on penance, is it not? It is by the acts of penance or contrition that one draws upon the grace offered by the Catholic Church. Grace is given by God through the church to the individual who performs acts of penance or repentance, if you will. So our modern English translations using the word repent is traced back to the church fathers of the Catholic Church Hermes and Justin Martin. They're the ones that systematized Catholic theology and then Augustine cemented it. Augustine believed, listen to this now, that repentance was not the work of man, but a gift from God. So the connection between penance and baptism was then made in the writings of the early Catholic Church fathers. Augustine infers that infant baptism conveys the grace and the forgiveness that is needed to erase original sin. But those sins committed following the baptism of the baby required acts of repentance. This is an effect, this is effective then for justification, regeneration, and sanctification of the believer according to Augustine. Simply stated, simply stated, Roman Catholic theology equates repentance with contrition, confession, and penance. This bankrupt theology was adopted by the Reformers, who connected those same acts of repentance with the Hebrew term shrub, S-H-U-B. Sometimes it's written as S-U-B. The word shub is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. However, it's only translated by the translators as repent or repentance 14 times. The Reformers based their understanding then of the Greek term metanoia, translated repent in this, in this verse, as be connected to shub. And shub was used in the Old Testament by the prophets for the idea of turning away from evil and turning to good. Hence, the connection is made. The idea was that one must repent, turn from evil, and turn to God. But if you understand the text correctly, that was, already, that was always said to who? Children of Israel. 
believers in God, not to unbelievers. So it's asking those who are believers to return from apostasy to the truth of God. Through the prophets, the Lord called on the chosen people to return to himself using this same word, shub, which I'm going to read you the English text with same, which says repent. Ezekiel said three times, repent, turn away from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Repent, turn away from all your offenses. Turn, turn from your evil ways. He's talking to believers, children of God, Israelites, not to unbelievers. So the Reformers and the Calvinists adopted this Old Testament understanding through their relationship to the Catholic Church, and they imported it into the New Testament. However, the Greek word, the word that is found in the original writings, the text that we know is infallible, uses the term metanoia, not penitent, nor shub. And it always means a change of mind about the context in which it is used. The context determines what its meaning is. For example, if I asked you to metanoia, change your mind about Ford cars, that would require you to think differently about buying a new car. That doesn't mean that you have to feel sorry that you bought a Ford and that it broke down and that it means fix or repair daily. So then this idea of expressing sorrow, contrition, asking God for something to do in order to make you right with him is imported, developed, and inserted into Christian doctrine from Roman Catholicism in the early Middle Ages. They used the Latin word penance, and they connected it to the Greek term metanoia. But is that what John was really saying? I suggest to you it is not. What was John's message? First of all, you have to to understand who the audience was. The audience that John was speaking to was not the church. Again, the church hadn't developed yet. It was still a mystery yet to be revealed. John was speaking to the Jewish people. And yes, John denounced evil wherever he saw it. It mattered little to him if the evil was being done by a king appointed by the Romans or by the Jewish people themselves, but especially that by the Jewish leadership in religion. John rebuked them. He rebuked the ordinary man as well as the leaders and the rich men. But the Greek word translated here in the English text as repent does not really mean what we think it means. Webster's defines repent to mean to feel sorrow, to self-reproach, or to be contrite for some past action. The Greek word that John uses means to have a change of mind. It does not carry the idea of feeling sorry, having contrition, or turning from sin, as many say it does. The word metanoia is a compound word. Let's talk about the Greek word. It consists of two words brought together to make a new word. Meta is the first part. Naus is the second part. Metanoia. The first part, meta, means after or beyond. The second part, nos, means mind. So the idea, if you bring them together, is after mind 
or afterthought. In classical Greek, the word has always indicated a change of mind about something or someone. What the context is that the change of mind is concerning will determine its meaning. An important question then for us to ask is about John's audience. Obviously, he was speaking to the nation of Israel. He was speaking to the Jews. He was speaking to all people, high and low stature. And what was he asking the people to do? He was asking them to afterthought, to rethink, to change their mind about something or someone. In this case, he was asking them to rethink their lifestyle as a nation, the way they lived for God. As you know, they had not been obeying the law of God. They had been ignoring the Lord. They had been doing as they pleased rather than what God pleased. And this was being modeled for them. It was being modeled for them by their religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who Jesus will later call hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. So John comes bearing this message, asking the individual Jew to have a change of mind so that the corporate Israel would will return to God. This is not asking Jews to be saved the way that we understand it today in the church. These were already the people of God. They were the chosen people. They were special to God. They had all sorts of privileges that others did not. John was asking them to identify with his message that the nation should turn away from the sad state that it had been founded and return to living according to the standards of the covenants and the law of Moses. John was not asking for them to make a statement of personal salvation, but a collective national awakening of the sins that they were committing. The chosen people needed to have a change of mind about the way that Israel was conducting business. The promised Messiah could not come. The Messiah could not come unless they changed their mind. He could not come and establish on earth what was in heaven if the nation was not in harmony with the will of God. John was asking them as a people, the people of God, to have a change of thinking about their way of living. Now, most people think that those, most people think who, who misinter, misinterpret this do so because they have a different methodology of interpreting the Bible. The only way to interpret the Bible accurately is to understand it literally. The proper interpretive model is to understand all of the Old Testament the law and the prophets and the writings, and the New Testament, including all of the prophecies, literally. If you do that, then you understand that Christ came offering to bring in his thousand-year reign. The kingdom of God would ensue on earth at Jesus' first coming. If the people would receive him and return to to the covenants and the Mosaic law. Now, I say this because there are those in Christendom who say that Jesus is reigning now in the hearts of believers. That this thousand-year reign has ensued already. They say thousand years is a figurative number and that it can be 
a length of time uh, larger than a thousand or less than a thousand. But Christ is ruling in your hearts. But for Jesus to be king, he must have a kingdom. For Jesus to be king, he must have subjects in his kingdom. For Jesus to be king, he must have rules, guidelines of ethics for those in his kingdom. If he is to rule, he must have a place to rule at. Israel is that place. Jesus came to Israel offering himself to be the king of the people. He was introduced here at John's baptism, which was calling the people of God to receive the Messiah by turning back to the covenants and the law of Moses. Now, John was not baptizing these Jews in the way that we understand baptism today. I've said that before, but let me articulate about that. These Jews were not indwelled by the Holy Spirit when they were baptized by John. These Jews were not gifted by the Holy Spirit when they were baptized by John. These Jews were not placed into the church when they were baptized by John. That's not what this baptism is. This baptism was an identification with John's message that the nation of Israel collectively needed to change and return to the Lord and obeying the covenants and the law. John's baptism was individuals, but they were representing collective Israel and God's desires for her. Now, John's ministry was very pointed. He would challenge the prevailing concepts of the Jewish people, as we saw in the video. For example, most Jews thought that they were right with God. They thought they were right with God because of their DNA. That is, they had a presumption that because they were Jews, part of the nation of Israel, part of those who received the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, they were good with God. The people thought they were special and that as children of Abraham, that God would always accept them no matter what. Their entrance then into the Messianic kingdom was guaranteed. But John comes challenging that, that they had to have a change of mind about that. That's what he says to the Pharisees. Most Jews didn't realize how far they drifted away. They didn't really understand that they had rejected and turned away from God. But Jews today think the exact same thing as the Jews in the Old Testament. They don't believe that they need to be saved. Jews today don't believe in heaven or hell. They don't believe in damnation. They don't really believe too much about sin. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament for sin is sha'at, C-H-A-Y-T. It literally means to miss the mark. It's a term that is often used in archery. When you miss the bullseye, you've missed the mark. When a Jew misses the mark then and today by sinning, it's a failure to fulfill the law of God. And how do you get right after that? You ask God to forgive you through prayer, or you do some kind of repentance, or you do some kind of good deed. John warns that this is not so. They must have a change of mind about the kingdom of heaven. So to be clear... John's message isn't soteriological, but it's eschatological. 
His point is not about salvation, but about the coming kingdom of God, which he says is near or at hand. John is announcing that the rule of God is ready to be transferred from heaven to the earth as the king arrives. This kingdom rule over the earth can only be instituted by a king over a willing people. John is preparing the way. Some have wondered about this term found in this specific text about the kingdom of heaven. You've probably heard the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Do they mean the same thing or are they synonymous? What's the deal here? Well, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven 39 times in his book, though he does use kingdom of God several other times. But he uses the kingdom of heaven for very good reason. Because the Jew would not say God. Even today, if you go on the internet and go to a Jewish site, they will not use the term God because that is an, a reproach to God. It violates, in their minds, the, the uh, uh, Ten Commandments. So, Matthew doesn't use that term God. He uses the term heaven as a substitute. So, Jews today do the same thing. What is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Nothing. They're synonymous. How do I know that? How can I prove that? Well, the Lord Jesus says so. That's pretty good proof, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, listen very closely, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He uses the same term synonymously in both, using heaven and God equally. So they're synonymous. Both term refers to the king's rule over the earth. And John says, have a change of mind because the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. So any failure on the part of Israel to change their thinking will mean that the program of God is disrupted, interrupted. Now we see this as John was predicted by the prophet Isaiah in verse 3 of chapter 40 of Isaiah. It's also in verse 3 of our text. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3, the prophet when he said, John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ray Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Matthew quotes Isaiah here for backup, saying that John is the fulfillment of this. The context, though, that this verse from Isaiah 40 is a very long one. It's 26 chapters. This is the beginning of it. The prophecy says that the nation of Israel, which is in captivity in Babylon, can only be restored when the way is made open for them. The highway is cleared, if you will. So Isaiah is calling for the workers to clear the way in the desert for the Babylonian exiles to return from captivity. Matthew now applies that same thinking, that same prophecy to John. John is clearing the way, clearing the highway, if you will, for the king to come. As you know, there, there were not many roads back in these days in the deserts. In fact, any road that was out there was really just ruts made by, or 
by camels and, and, and wagons and whatever in the dirt. So a journey along that way was quite an adventure when you're talking thousands of miles, 1,500 miles. But the kings of every nation had roads that they maintained themselves, and they were called the king's highway. Well, the king didn't use these roads all the time, but when he did, he would send out a messenger who would go along the king's highway, and the local people living along that way would then clear the road and make sure that it was able to be used by the king. So the messenger would go out and announce, prepare the way for the king. He's coming. And the roads would be repaired, smoothed out, straightened, or leveled because he was the king. John, he is modeling this for us in his speech and action. He is making way. He's preparing the way for the king, the Lord to come. John is preaching this in the desert of Judea. He's remained separate from the religious system of his day. He doesn't go in and challenge the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. He's out in the desert. Have you ever wondered why? Verse 4, John himself wore a garment of camels here, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Hopefully, you'll recall that uh, Matthew presented, as I said last week, Jesus as the new Moses. Do you remember that? And now he's presenting John as the new Elijah. John dresses like, John smells like, John eats like Elijah. He wears the camel hair and the leather belt and all that because he's speaking as Elijah would to his audience, the Jewish people. When they see John, they in essence see Elijah. Now on the map behind me, you can see that the people were asked to come out to the Judean desert to, you're going to work? Here we go. To the Rift Valley is what this is called. This is the lowest point on earth. You have mountains here and mountains here. The Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. John was right here around the city of Jericho on the Jordan River. The people from Judea came to John out in the middle of the desert in the Rift Valley right by the Jordan River to hear him speak. So in verse 5, we see that they came out from Jerusalem to him, all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. So all of those up in the hill country and in the mountains had to walk down, hear John, and then if they agreed with his message, they would submit to baptism in the River Jordan. In doing so, the nation of Israel showed they were identifying with this concept of changing their mind about the way the nation was conducting business. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan and they were confessing their sins. This is not ceremonial washing done by Jews. No one is cleaning their hands. You've seen that before with, with the uh, funny little leather belts on their head and wrappings on their arms. This is not... Uh, ceremonial cleansing for a violation of the law. John's baptism was to prepare them for the arrival of the king. The Greek word that's used in this text for baptism or baptize is a word that means to dip or to immerse. Bapto is the Greek word. It's carried over, transliterated directly into English. But when it was used back then, it spoke of taking a cloth and placing it into water that had dye into it. When they lifted it out, the, water, the cloth would be changed and it would be 
the same color as the dye it was dipped into. It identified with the color of dye it was immersed into. So when you are baptized in a religious sense, it speaks of the participant being dipped in to the message of the speaker and coming out identifying with that message. Gentiles self-immersed, that is, they identified with the new, their new state as, as members of the Jewish community, the nation of Israel, and they did away with their former nationality as Gentiles. To summarize, John's message speaks to Israel about the spiritual crisis within it, and John states that they must prepare the way for the Lord to come by getting ready by having a change of mind about their thinking about the law. We read that the people came out to the Jordan River to hear. Did you ever wonder about that? Why didn't they just do it at mikvahs? If you've ever been to Israel, like I have a number of times, you find mikvahs all over the place. That is a baptismal pool with water in it where you could step down into it. Why didn't they go to the Sea of Galilee? Wouldn't that have been a much more picturesque beautiful place. Why the Jordan River? Well, I believe it's because the Jordan is identified with a spiritual change for the nation of Israel. As you know, the Jordan River is the border between the wilderness in which the people of Israel wandered for 40 years and the promised land. When they crossed the Jordan River, they crossed into the land of promise that God said would be filled with abundance for them. So entrance into the promised land marked an end to their wilderness wandering. In verse 7, we read that John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming from baptism. Now there's a textual problem there. It should say he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, not for baptism. And he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These are the religious leaders of Israel. They come out to hear John's message. They've heard all about him. He's, he's raised red flags in their thinking. And as you know, there were four different main religious groups in Israel. But only two of them come out. And both of these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like Republicans and Democrats, they didn't like one another. But here they make nice to one another because they're facing a common enemy. They unite against John because he is a threat to their power in Israel. As you know, the Pharisees were the most prominent of the religious groups in Israel. The Pharisees claimed to be the protectors of the Mosaic Law and the rabbinic traditions found in the Old Testament extra writings. They were um, also in link with the Sanhedrin where the Sadducees were found as well. The, the Sadducees were the Greek rationalists of the day with religious overtones. They believed in facts and logic rather than religious books like the Book of Moses. And so they denied the issues of faith even though they were Jewish leaders. For example, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They did not believe in an afterlife, and that's been carried over to today. The Sadducees had the political clout uh, in Israel because they were granted it by Rome. They ruled in Israel. These two groups come together because they recognize John can be a threat to them. They will again come together to uh, 
defeat in their mind the ministry of Jesus as well. Well, John sees them coming and he likens them to a bunch of snakes fleeing an oncoming brush fire. John recognizes that they are evil hypocrites filled with lies and deceit. All the while they pretended to be devoted to God. So he says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That kind of has an ironic meaning when you think about it because the Sadducees didn't believe in any wrath to come. And then John in verse 8 says to them, they should bear fruit in keeping with a change of mind, or in this case, in the English text, repentance. These were the Jewish intelligentsia of the day. These men were the priests. These men were the lawyers. These men were the scholars. But in actuality, they were nothing more than blind guides to the people. They should have recognized, they should have been aware that the Lord and his coming were near, but they couldn't see anything. Remember, they couldn't even identify uh, or have any uh, desire to go identify Bethlehem as the place of the Lord's birth. So John assails them for their ignorance and a lack of desire of knowing the, the truth. Do you suppose, in verse 9, do you not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father? Biting sarcasm. Do you really think you're going to get into heaven, is what John's saying, just because you're related to Abraham by DNA? That's the question. But that's what they thought. They did believe that. They thought, my great-great-grandfather, Jedediah, was a member, a charter member of the tribe of Judah. I got no problems. I'm going to skate right on into heaven. But John says they can forget that nonsense. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. They claim to be right with God because they were DNA related to Abraham, but God could make stones his children if he desired. So the point is you cannot trust in your genealogy. You cannot trust in your genealogy. They might be Jews, but that doesn't mean that they were right with the Almighty. Your birth and your nationality do not make you right with God. Just because you're an American doesn't make you a Christian. The nation had demonstrated their relationship clearly to God by not producing fruit. The Messiah for him to come, he was looking for fruitfulness from Israel. But they failed. Therefore, they are in jeopardy, says the text, for judgment. Matthew warns them of this in verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Last week, Dave was out cutting up the limbs that fell from the tree in that big windstorm. And he would put his cutter, his electric, or what was it, gas? Gas cutter next to that tree limb, and then he would cut down through it. He didn't whack at it. It was laid there next to it, and then cut down through it. The axe is in that exact same position according to this text. It's laying at the root. Judgment was coming. 
As you know, the life of any tree flows from the root. In this case, the root was the leadership of Israel. As go the leaders, so goes the nation of Israel. If the leaders of Israel were hypocrites and didn't believe in God, then they needed to be cut down, gotten rid of. What does it mean to be cut down? What does it mean that these trees would be burned up? We must remember that this is a figure of speech, okay? However, the point from this figure is clear. Those who reject the message that the king is coming will face judgment. And as you know, fire in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a symbol of wrath and the judgment of God. So, the figure here is of a gardener removing the trees from his garden that are unfruitful and burning them and then replacing those trees with new ones. The test of any tree, any fruit tree, is does it produce good fruit? So John now moves on to explaining who he is and his role when he says this. As for me, I come baptizing you with water for a change of mind, repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. As I said previously, Jesus said John was a great man, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. His ministry was to announce the coming of the Lord, the coming of the King. He is like a slave. The worst job a slave had was taking the shoes off of the master after he walked through dirt and mud. John says he's not even fit to take care of that job of a slave. That's how great the one who is coming, the king who is coming, compared to himself. Now John also says, I come baptizing you with water. I can get you wet, but I can't do what the one, what, I can't do what the one who is coming can, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and a fire. Now, those who know their Old Testament, those who were listening to him, would have instantly thought of two passages in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 3. Those texts say this, it will come about after this, this that the Lord will pour out my spirit on all of mankind. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purify silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present the Lord's offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old. As in former years, then I will draw near to you for judgment. You see, in the Old Testament, no individual was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit would come upon people and enable them to do the work of God. But in the New Testament, God promises Israel here in um, Malachi and in Joel And further, in Ezekiel, that he will give his spirit, my spirit, to indwell the people of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of the sinner 
uh, excuse me, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There it is. A change of mind about the way that they were conducting themselves. God wanted to give them his spirit so that they could do what? Walk in my statutes and observe my ordinances. This is the promise of God to the Jewish people. He would come and reign over them as king if they would change their thinking. Since John was speaking to Jews under the law, there's no church. He's speaking to Jews under the law. He's talking to them as Jews. This is a Jewish context. He's communicating to them as Hebrews, not as Christians. This is not Christian doctrine. They knew nothing about the future indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They knew nothing about the future church. And in fact, John uses the Hebrew term here for spirit, uh, raka, and it's similar to the Greek word, pneuma. The Hebrew raka meant spirit, breath, and wind. To have the spirit was to have the breath of God. The breath of God gives life. So this is the promise of life that is being offered. If the Spirit of God breathes into man, comes in and dwells him, it was the Spirit of life. That's the context that they were thinking. The Spirit of God also means wind in the Old Testament. Rock. Raka. And it's used to describe a great windstorm, and it's also used to describe of wind filling the sails of ships to move them along. So the idea here is that the Spirit of God has the power to impart life. When the Spirit fills a man, he enables him to do the undoable. He enables him to face the unfaceable and to bear the unbearable. So then the baptism of the coming Messiah, the king, will have two purposes. The first purpose was fulfilled at Pentecost. That is, men were given the power by the Holy Spirit to live and witness for Christ. The second baptism of fire has not happened yet. That speaks of a future judgment at the end of the tribulation period. These two baptisms then are separate and distinct from one another. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred at the Messiah's first coming, at the end of it. The baptism of the fire occurs at the end of his second coming, and it's defined for us, that fire is defined for us in verse 12. Look with me there, that's where we will end this morning. Again, it's a figurative statement, okay? The Lord is described as carrying carrying his winnowing fork in his hand. He's not going to eat dinner. Hold on. He will thoroughly clear his fleshing, threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is an image, a figure that shows the Lord coming to the world in judgment. It's picked, the world is pictured as a threshing floor. He's, ca- he's carrying a shovel or a, what might look like a pitchfork with fingers on it to lift up the fruit of the harvest that's been brought to the threshing floor. And 
the harvester would use this shovel or, or fork, if you will, to toss the stalk of grain into the air. The grain, which is heavier than the stalk, would fall back to the threshing floor, and the chaff, the remaining, remaining part of that which was brought in from the fields, would blow from the wind outside of the threshing floor. Now, the harvester would then collect the grain and place it in storage. The chaff would then be used to fuel the fires in the evening. The chaff is worthless. The only thing that it is good for is to be burned up and destroyed. This illustrates the judgment that is coming at the end of the reign of Christ in which he will judge those who have rejected his message, in particular, in this case, the Jews. Okay. What does this mean to you and me? How can I apply this to my life today? First of all, John spoke the truth. It eventually resulted in his own death by decapitation. But he did it anyway. Secondly, John was warning others of the danger that they faced even though they didn't realize it. John did this by confronting the powers that be, whether they be secular or religious. He did this personally and directly. John also recognized the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, and what they were doing was not a victimless crime. There are many people who would end up apart from God because of their actions. John was not politically correct. He called the leaders of Israel poisonous snakes. We must be willing to re-examine the way that we conduct ourselves in a world filled with people going to hell. Are we willing to be ambassadors for Christ, to not be politically correct, and to be honest with people about where they stand with the Almighty? It might cost you greatly. Job, position, friendship, relationship. We must re-examine what we believe in light of the truth of Scripture. We must make ourselves ready for the coming of the Messiah. The King is coming according to the New Testament. We too should be ready. We should be looking. We should be prepared. We should be preparing the way for the Lord to return. Are you? This text should cause us to have a change of mind about our own behavior. May we become more like John the Baptizer than Bill the Do-Nothers. Nothings. Let us Risk it all for the Savior, because he's coming soon to be king. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text. Help us, Lord, to understand it correctly. Help us, Father, to have harmony in our doctrine, harmony in our beliefs, harmony in our behavior. Help us, Lord, not to be afraid to take a stand, but to be truth-tellers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.